welcome to the fifth episode of The First Exchange. Can't believe we're at five episodes already. Um, so today's episode is a really good one. Uh, my friend and jiu-jitsu teammate, Dr. Renuk O'Leary is in with us today um, to discuss her career. Um, Renuk is a counsellor and forensic psychologist. Um, and she's now a jiu-jitsu blue belt. So we went in and we talked about her work and we got onto some very interesting topics and, you know, uh, she discussed and, and let us know about the people that she works with day in day out um, and also we talk about jiu-jitsu how she started and what led her to you know this amazing kind of road of jiu-jitsu and competing she's like a complete, one of Ireland's greatest uh, jiu-jitsu competitors and is now purple belt and also we spoke about her uh, a battle and kicking cancer in the ass um, she was diagnosed with breast cancer uh, a little under two years ago so we spoke about um, her journey um, to, to beating that uh, so I hope you enjoy Dr. Renock O'Leary. Well, this this is an exciting one. Let me turn down my headset a tiny bit. Um, welcome to the first exchange, Miss Renock O'Leary. Thank you. So Thanks good to much. have you here. You. Um, yeah. So let's get straight into it because there's so, you've uh, for anyone that is listening, Renock has come with a refill pad full of notes. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew she would. Um always come prepared. That's like I knew she would. Um so let's get straight onto it. So we met five years ago now mm-hmm. um at Jiu Jitsu. Mm-hmm. We were two last little non-jiu-jitsuing uh, uh, what would we've been like seal I was a seal for sure um, and you were probably a Labrador because you love Labradors oh, yeah. um, but basically we met at jiu-jitsu and uh, right to say that we formed a very close bond mm-hmm. from like the very start and um, went onto this like crazy learning journey and love affair with jiu-jitsu yep. and it's still going to this mm-hmm. day so obviously we want to talk about jiu-jitsu but more importantly I want to talk about your your profession because one of the the great things about jiu-jitsu is that when you train or when you train any martial arts or in any gym if you do anything there is not a lot of conversation about what do you do outside of work Mm -hmm. the conversation tends to be a lot about jiu-jitsu and what's happening with the technique or whatever so it's a very equal playing field in terms of you know who who's it does what in their career or whatever Um, and then when I found out that you were a counselling and forensic psychologist, I was like, yeah. holy shit, boss. <laughs> she's really smart. Yeah. So first of all, what does your job entail? Explain to our viewers, our, our listeners. I'm so used to saying viewers, I do it every week. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. <laughs> um, yeah, I work in a community-based forensic service. Okay. So... The most uh, the majority of clients that I see are referred by their solicitors and they have been involved in the um, criminal justice system. OK, um, they've committed a variety of crimes and their solicitor generally refers them um, for me to do an assessment. So with a view to kind of looking at their backstory and the different reasons that contributed to the offence that, that they did. What, generalize what kind of... <laughs> Offenses. What kind of offences kind of are we working with? Um, everything really. I mean, so uh, drug possession, theft, robber- robbery, uh, fraud, um, violent offences, sexual offences, yeah, like uh, murder, uh, rape. No way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you literally have to do everything. Like, mm. there's so much that I want to ask you in in terms of that, but. Um, 
like what first of all what is it what is the decision that you make did you decide to go into that particular area or were you like I'm going to be a therapist I'm going to be a counselor oh no I found myself in this area yeah. like, what was the decision yeah I was thinking about this that's why I ended up writing the three pages <laughs> I just write a few bullet points um <laughs> I think it kind of started within within my family. So yeah. there's seven people in my family and we're all very close and get on really well and still to this day. But I suppose everyone is very kind of um, academic and mm. opinionated and likes to debate points um, about history, current affairs, all sorts of things, which is fantastic and brilliant. Yeah. And I love that. Um, but, you know, growing up, you would have had to have been very quick off the mark to get your opinion out there because if you were slow if you if you if you dawdled in what you were trying to say or tripped over your words that's it someone else is coming in like I imagine Christmas is just like over Christmas must be just an absolute like hoot <laughs> yeah it is a hoot and it is a hoot in a way it definitely is so I'm not kind of describing this in a negative way at all but I suppose I found that like I, I don't know I just think I think I take a a bit longer to sort of warm up and yeah. to get my ideas straight and I like to kind of think about things a bit more before I you know process them a bit more before mm. I articulate them so I just found a bit I suppose maybe as a child growing up a bit that I, I, I felt like I wasn't uh, fast enough to, to get my points out there yeah and again I'm not kind of giving out or complaining but what that just gave rise to I think is that it made me think about you know I think that there, uh, that that I suppose the right conditions have to be created for a person to truly be able to say maybe what's on their mind yeah. and um, <clears throat> express themselves maybe in the way that they want to, and that if somebody doesn't have these conditions, then to somebody else around them, they might not, not never know what's what you know what truly they have to say, I suppose, or what they truly think or feel, or even coming from that, what what gifts they might have. So even. did you feel in some kind of way that <laughs> you wanted to be sort of like this voice or representative for people who don't really have a voice? It, it kind of, I think, grew on from that because then I was thinking about it and uh, I used to always play with teddies, right, when I was yeah. younger. I had about, I don't know, 50 or 100 teddies. And <laughs> every teddy's story was the same. <laughs> Which was they came from some sort of dysfunctional teddy family, <laughs> and, then, and then I I would come across them, and then I would say, "Come, come and be my teddy, and live with me in my teddy commune." And then, <laughs> where did they? So there must be like some dig. I'm tr I'm trying to do your job now. I'm trying to like dig deeper. But yeah. where is that? Because obviously, you know, for from hearing about your family you know it's it seems like you know everyone kind of had their shit together I suppose so yeah. like there was no dysfunction as in no. the classic dysfunction as no. the, as we know it no um so I'm trying to figure out like wh where did that like what part of the brain or the imagination as a child does is that the story for yeah. your teddies do you know what I mean it's, it's really interesting like yeah. and the reason I asked that is because I wonder you know in in my brain I'm like oh go back to like purpose you know and mm -hmm. like oh did you was it is this your purpose is this your calling and you knew it from a young age that's why you're here mm. you know what I mean that's the kind of stuff that I like to geek out on yeah yeah me too and I I just I I, I tried to ask myself that too well why why was my imaginative play why did it, why in that did it feature so strongly this theme of yeah uh, trying to kind of help <laughs> help another person, another being to yeah. to to be more to feel more secure and safe in the world and be able to 
flourish in their teddy ways yeah. back then. And so, do you do you feel yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I don't I don't really know exactly where that came from. Only that I suppose um, you know, I did I know as a child I was quite aware of what I did have, like the privileges that I did have, you know, mm. in, in terms of even just, you know, having a family void of any major dysfunction and two parents who loved me, who could communicate that love to me, mm. um, siblings who loved me too and I loved them, you know, no, um, yeah, as I said, no major illnesses or addictions or abuse or yeah. anything at all there. And even when you have those things, you're doing better than about... But eighty percent of the people in the world. Well, you know? see, here's the thing, and you obviously <coughs> see what you know. You see the other eighty percent that mm. are, that are there obviously through your job, you know. And it's always this thing of like where people go, you know, oh, I had a shit childhood, and I always think like, you know, you definitely didn't, you know, no, even though childhood, even though stuff might have happened to you, and stuff happens to everyone during their 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 youth and childhood, you know, and everyone carries stuff into their adulthood, mm. but. I always think that if you always think there's somebody out there that has it worse than you. Yeah, yeah, it really, it really does help. Yeah, yeah definitely. So without obviously, you know, obviously I understand that you have to respect the privacy of like cases that you take on mm. and stuff like that. But I'm trying to get, give our listener an, an idea of, you know, who you are and what you have to experience on the daily. So yeah. what's your kind of like week like and, yeah. and what kind of um, trials and tribulations do you, do you face? Yep. Yeah. Um, well, just to kind of explain a bit more, I suppose that the, the, the work I do is, is sort of um, two tiered in that there's I do assessments and then I do therapy. Yeah. So assessments are, as I said, trying to establish and identify mitigating factors for somebody's upcoming sentencing date. So right. judges um, have a sort of, you know, for the specific type of crime, they have just a discretion about what sort of sentence they give, you know, and they have certain parameters and the sentence they give within that parameter will rely on how many mitigating factors are there. So you, you often read in the news, you know, like, oh, the person pleaded guilty at an early date. Um, mm. uh, you know, they seem genuinely remorseful. <clears throat> Maybe they're in addiction and they're getting active treatment or something okay. like that. So, um, or if they've been, uh, you know, experienced abuse in their life or something, you know, all those different factors. So my job is to kind of outline those factors. Then also assessment-wise, I do... Um, risk of reoffending uh, assessments. Okay. So <clears throat> for they're mostly around really violent offences and sexual offences. So in the literature, it's known there, there are a certain number of risk factors that are, have been identified as being associated with reoffending right. for either violent offences or else sexual offences. So my job is to um, collect enough information so that I can accurately score the clients on these various different risk factors. Right. That produces an estimate of risk of reoffending. I put all that together in a report, give that to a judge, and the judge looks at it and says, well, okay, this person is high risk of reoffending. They probably need more, you know, harsh sentence. Okay. <clears throat> or more lenient if it's like a lower risk of reoffending. So I do all that. And then also for people who don't get custodial sentences, people don't go to prison, um, I will see them for therapy. So it could be individual work. Um, I've seen couples for therapy. Um, I've been involved in the group therapy program we run as well in the past. So my day to day is, I suppose, meeting clients face to face. Mm. So they come and meet me in my office and um, I talk to them, get a whole background. So I have to meet them a couple of times, spend a couple, number of hours with them. Then if their reading is, o is okay at a sufficient level, I give them personality tests. So I'm also collecting information from them so that way. Interesting. So, yeah, it's really interesting um, regarding different personality traits they have. Certain personality traits are associated with reoffending, both for violent and sexual offences, um, say impulsivity, um, 
levels, to ask, levels what are the red empathy. flags what are the red flags <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so um, what are major red flags or are things that you would look out for, mm. for for people that will be um serial reoffenders uh, emotional regulation i think is the primary factor and common denominator for what all what does that mean so it's the ability to uh, keep your keep your emotions sort of level, like in the middle. So if you have if you're kind of psychologically resilient and you're capable of regulating your emotions, yeah. when something negative happens to you in your life, yes, you may be sad. Yes, you may be angry. You might be anxious, um, you know, self-conscious, all of those things. But they never. They, well, uh, yeah, I would probably say never or at least 90 percent of the time they don't go to the level of say anger won't turn into rage uh sadness won't turn into despair um anxiety into panic or you know Mm self-consciousness into complete fear is it normal kind of in these sort of circumstances to go to those places it is for people who who offend because they basically um pretty much is common it's particularly to the violent and sexual offenders um they're not able to keep their emotions in in check or balanced, I suppose. Mm. Now, it's it's also harmful to be at the opposite extreme where you suppress all your emotions also. Yeah. So somebody who's who's quite psychologically stable, um, they're able to pro- uh, express their emotions appropriately, you know. So, um, as I said, they don't go to these extremes because then when, when people do go to these extremes, um, that's when they turn to kind of maladaptive or destructive behavior to try to cope with these extremes in emotions you know so you know i think one that people be familiar with is um you know drug use or any type of addiction really you know the the substances used to try to uh cope either to numb these emotions Mm. these extreme emotions that they have um or else you know to avoid them or numb uh upsetting memories as well and thoughts um so what you're really looking at, I suppose, is that um, how much psychological re- resilience does this person have? Can they keep their emotions in check? And how you do that, I suppose, is um, I shouldn't use in check because that kind of sounds like you shouldn't have any emotions because that's not the aim either. I suppose regulated is, yeah. is the word. Um, and how people do that is that they have um, they have appropriate and I suppose the word is pro-social coping mechanisms or strategies. Okay. So these are all words that I do not. They're all have words. A I'm banging out the, the terminology. I'll talk about something else a bit like, of a clue. Jane, get the dictionary over here, please. <laughs> uh, I, I'm trying. I hope I'm not. I'm trying nodding, to but I haven't the clue. I'm like, yeah, yes, yes. I hope it doesn't sound like an asshole. As Give I'm me my pipe. Here. I'm ready to smoke my pipe. <laughs> where's my beard? Where's, where's, you where's it? my beard? <laughs> I'll meet you in the library. Yeah, it's all like whatever complicated words it's stuff that we all know really you know yeah. but you know someone who is who is resilient i suppose does have good coping strategies so yeah. you know they'll have a circle of people that they talk to when when negative events happen you know mm. they'll have a, a close friend maybe family members um they'll also have you know other activities they take part in to, to help them regulate their emotions so you know it could be a sport or yeah. uh going out in nature um they might meditate, they might do yoga, this sort of stuff. Um, and then also uh, you're looking at their sort of internal coping strategies, yeah. which are 
what way do they think about things? You know, are they able to see the positives and the negatives? Are they able to be grateful at the same time as saying, oh, this shit has happened to me, but I'm so grateful for X, Y and Z. Um, are they able to be kind of hopeful and reframe things? Um, you know, are they able to take some sort of derive some sort of meaning from something mm. that's happened to them? So you're obviously kind of seeing stuff. like a, a massive um range of different types of people coming mm. from different types yeah. of backgrounds yeah i do the work that you do how how extensive is it so what is the period that you would have to work if say for for criminal cases how yeah. long are you working with one person could it be weeks on end or months on end um if they're coming for therapy it would be months it could be a year even and if they're if you're doing the, the, the work assessment. with the assessment with the court case yeah i probably a month i aim to get them get it done in a month now the issue is with that is uh, sometimes solicitors would refer a client to us and say oh his sentencing dates in two weeks can you do it and yeah sometimes i suppose for, to keep the business you're you're you want to say yes and you're trying to look at your diary to fit it in but one thing that is very important is uh, as you can imagine is that the people that we do see it is in their interest to try to portray themselves in the in best light. light I was just about to ask but of course, like, it, yeah. especially if you are going back to the judge mm, mm-hmm. and you're going to be like mm-hmm. you know I'm thinking here, like I'm not planning on getting into any criminal activity anytime soon. Sure? But, but can I choose you as a solicitor <laughs> if I do get into as, as a psychologist? As a psychologist, can I be like, here, we knock, do it's a solid here, we <laughs> I didn't mean to smash his windows in. <laughs> yeah. I know you too well. Yeah, yeah. I'll write a handy report for you. Good stuff. Um, but, yeah, no, but I, so you don't want to see them in a very short time because you'll find that the people who are trying, you know. Um, trying to portray themselves in a positive light like often if you only meet them twice for you know only two hours or three hours or four hours they might yeah. manage to like hold <laughs> hold themselves together for that much time yeah um and it's that you actually need to just spend longer periods of time with people and over a period of time so that you can you can meet them uh, almost like when they've when they've experienced different stressors in the outside world within that time so you get a sense of how they're reacting to things that are okay going on around them so ideally actually we ask for three months to do an assessment you know okay but the way it just happens you probably do you it in a month but you would get two. that is there is there um i know this is massively generalizing generalizing mm. now but obviously you also not only do you see a range of different types of people but mm. they come in after committing a series of different crimes Mm -hmm. is there anything that you can kind of like you know basically like bring connect them or connect all the dots together is it you know like a terrible childhood or is it like you know not having a father not having a mother or yeah is there something where you're like oh like again it comes in i'm taking this off the list um i look at that as i probably heard of this but say um abram maslow this would have been the 40s he came up with his with this hierarchy of human needs the human needs yeah, yeah I love yeah. it yeah. so the physiological needs on, on the bottom food, water, oxygen yeah. um, the next is uh, the next needs are safety so mm. somewhere warm sleep at night and a roof over your head yeah um, the next tier I think is um, a sense of belonging or love so you mm. feel that you have that someone loves you you are mm. lovable and that you have a, a tribe, is that what yeah. the youth of today say? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah that, you, that you fit in somewhere, I suppose, and have something in common with other people. Um, oh, God, jiu-jitsu is like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sake. yeah. <laughs> right, go on. Um, and then above that, um, 
our uh, self-esteem needs. So they're a bit more uh, personal. So a sort of a sense of um, mastery, accomplishment, um, potency in the world is kind of mm-hmm. like the, the metaphor I like to use. Um, and then he had at the top something called self-actualization, which is a bit more, um, I suppose, metaphoric or philosophical. But um, yeah, the idea that you you can you can fulfill any innate uh, talent or ability that you have and that that talent or ability generally serves a, a greater purpose than yourself. So, um, you know, usually it'll be something about, <clears throat> it will be about maybe helping other people or your community or often when people have families, you know, to have children, they, they experience this, that this need is met. Oh, so, very interesting. Yeah. Okay. okay, so yeah. that is why people, when they have children, you know, go on this sort of like, I don't know, I don't want to say the wrong thing because they offend like <laughs> everyone has children, but they have this thing of like sort of, kind of a, a greater self-importance where it's like, yeah. you know, you don't understand yeah. if you don't have kids, like you have to have kids to understand how important it is and how you've never felt love like this and mm. how, you know, nothing else matters. Mm, I think so it is, do yeah. you think that you can um, sort of mimic that feeling or mimic that um, sort of, meeting the needs of the hierarchy yeah. needs in doing something like a job that is helping people or community based or so is that sort of I suppose the secret to happiness I think that is the secret to happiness mm, if I to do yeah and it doesn't have to be your job because I think the way society is set up you know we need to be realistic too some people the way things have turned out and the opportunities available to them um, in suiting them, you know, having a job where they're not, they don't love their job, but it's, mm. a, it's a means for them to spend their time outside their job, yeah. Um, yeah. realizing the self-actualization. So, but I know for me personally, my job gives me that sense. It yeah. does, it does. And I could go into the, <laughs> the realm of sounding a bit mad now, but if you want me to, I will. <laughs> but, Go deep. Uh, <laughs> Go as mad as you yeah. need to. Madder the better. I'm all about so, the hits. All about these hits, Jane, aren't we? The numbers. This will get us some hits, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I start saying I'm the Messiah, mate. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> no, I think we all need to, uh, yeah, uh, express our inner, inner Messiah. But um, mm. uh, before, hang on, that's a bold <laughs> statement. How does one express their inner Messiah? <laughs> Yeah, I think for me, I'm going to start. Ta- me, I'm going to take notes here. <laughs> <laughs> for me, that's about helping the most vulnerable people in society, mm. and I I try to take that a step further, and I, I try not only to help the vulnerable people, but hate the really disliked people. Mm. So they're my favorite clients to work. Uh, work with so I know that this is more of a darker side of thing but I'm I like I, I really enjoy uh, I suppose working with the sex offenders particularly people who offend it's actually against children they're they're the client group I like to work with a lot because I suppose I think that um, it's it's kind of in the you know general lexicon these days for people to talk about um, kindness compassion empathy mm. and forgiveness and forgiveness is like, it's a bit of a taboo, but people are kind of into, you know, just about got their head around maybe, you know, forgiving, forgiving their, their neighbor or their friend or something yeah. when they mess up. But I think if we can, if we can take that to forgiving people who've committed the worst crimes, who've, who've hurt the most people and probably the, 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 the most sort of, um, you know, upsetting and destructive ways. Mm. 
And now I'm talking about the people who, who actually want forgiveness and want to, to yeah. rehabilitate, you know, um, to go to those people and say, OK, I'm here and I see that you're still a good person. You've mm. you've committed this horrible act, um, but I see that you're more than that. I see that's only a part of you that uh, and something that you did um, because of multiple factors in your life. And I'm here and I'm, I'll sit here with you and I'll help you identify what those factors are and Together, we'll figure out how you won't do this again. And if you don't have hope for that, I'll hold the hope for you and oh, we'll figure it out. That's <laughs> and heavy. Like, that's <laughs> like... I get such a buzz off that. Like, I just do. you do. say it like that I as would, well? I would. I would say it like oh that God, to some like people who are... Here. Uh, yeah, for, for the really hopeless people, I would, you know? Because they... I, I suppose that's it. Like, that's... Do you find yourself yeah. having the ability to be like that to so to I would say uh, a, a pedophile that comes into mm-hmm. you right, sat yeah. in front of you? Do you find that you have to take the emotion out of the situation? Do you know what I mean? Mm. Because people will listen to this and they'll go like, you know, if they have children mm. or they're mm. they're small kids in their family and they're they're just cutting that off straight away, they're like, I will not tolerate like pedophilia like mm. like kill them all you know I mean yeah. that's that's the general thing people are it like is. if you thankfully I am not on Facebook but you see these comments that float around screenshots and stuff people are like burn them all and you know what I mean and yeah. it, it is that whole thing of contradiction like you say and like people are like trying to be kind be love putting up their memes on Instagram you know like mm-hmm. you know show compassion so do you find that you have to sort of like take the you, your emotional way out of the situation or do you find that it's yeah. your emotion that helps you to do that? You have to do both. And, and this is true for just general um, training to be a psychologist or a therapist as well. It's, mm. it, it, you know, th- this is talked about in, when you do training for this is, is this idea that you kind of step in, in and out of the emotional quality of things, I suppose. Because you, you, you need to have a kind of objective lens and that's more kind of scientifically based um and then though you you do you do need to you do need to kind of feel the I suppose I mean the, the emotions of the other persons mm-hmm. that you can empathize with them and then also you need to be able to have some sort of feeling for um you know the the the, the, the victim in the situation obviously I will never know at all what it's like to be a victim in that in that situation mm-hmm. of, of such a crime yeah but you need to be careful about that you know you need to bring the victim into the room I suppose mm-hmm. is the way I would phrase it and sometimes you can lose sight of the victim all right you know so yeah I imagine so yeah yeah so yeah. sometimes you need to yeah you need to bring the bring the victim into the room and if it's too much kind of um you know, if you've gone too far away from the idea of like, well, but but you did you commit this action and you are responsible mm. for it, then you you kind of need to level it off. With that Am I allowed that. to ask you what are, yeah. would be the main contributing factors for pedophilia? Like, what is the main yeah. thing that people say? Yeah. Like, so pedophilia is a very um, misunderstood subject, and. I suppose um, I think it's just such a dark subject that people don't want to talk about it, you know, and I, yeah. I get that as well. But I just feel, you know, in this in this country as well, we have I mean, the, the courts are just rife with these crimes, um, particularly viewing child pornography and then sexual offences against children. But I suppose the most important thing to say, I guess, at the start is that a, a paedophile really, it, as, as recognised in the kind of uh, psychological and psychiatric literature, is someone who, um, you know, when they're in a healthy and happy place, mm. their sexual attraction is still towards children. So the way you might 
you, the way you might be gay or straight. Yeah. Uh, these people are sexually attracted to children. So the vast majority of people that I see, and you're talking about 90%, are people that they've looked at child pornography or they've sexually offended against a child, but they're not actually primarily sexually attracted towards children at all. It's a, it's a result of um, a, a mix, you know, compounding factors of psychological trauma. Mm. And um, for the child pornography uh, clients, a lot of them, it, it's, it's an addiction to pornography. That's something I could talk about separately, but pornography addiction is absolutely epidemic and really really dangerous and yeah it's a real it's, thing that people don't know about it's genuinely like <laughs> like a, you know it's kind of like where uh it's so interesting to hear you say that because i see it so much online where mm. people talk mm-hmm. about pornography and mm-hmm. like you know like in lots of like you know sex advice columns for couples and it's like mm-hmm. maybe watch some porno together and mm. stuff like that you know what i mean and it's like i've never like i've obviously seen porn before like i'm not like that sheltered but the idea of sitting down with someone to watch porn mm. Actually makes me want Imagine. to throw up. I'm like, I'd rather do it myself yeah. than sit there and yeah. watch someone yeah. else do it. Totally Thankfully, I have a, a, a like a wild imagination. I don't need to. But, um, sorry, parents, again this week. But like, what is the the um? What is the is it like? What is the addiction with pornography addiction? Yeah. Like, is it the fast paced thrill? Is it the yeah? It can, like, it can be it, it can be definitely different things. But what you'll see is that I suppose it's the same to other, as other substance addictions, where you know some people some you know people get to their late teens and most people start drinking, and then you know the, the majority of the people they don't end up having a problem with it. But one of your fr- one person out of the twenty you know does you know yeah. they get to 30 and they're still drinking like they were when they're 18 you know oh, yes. four nights a week blackouts and all this kind of stuff yeah um so it's the same with pornography i think it's, it's probably harmless for for a lot of people you know mm. as in probably um it, mostly guys i guess you know in teenage years will will view pornography and i don't know the odd time for not long and that's it and they kind yeah. of grow out of it and, and it's not an issue anymore um but for some people and again it's because they're coming at it with other issues that have mm. that have existed uh, prior to their viewing of pornography, yeah. and what of, what generally happens, I suppose, is that they use it as a crutch. It comes back to the emotional regulation piece. They don't know, they can't, they don't have positive ways of, to cope with emotions, so they start viewing pornography when um, they're sad or they're angry or they feel rejected or alone or abandoned. Fuck. And this this the pornography will distract them. Then it, the pornography, it's. Um, it's reinforced because <laughs> really getting into it now here, but uh, it, the the behavior is reinforced because it's pleasurable if they're ple- pleasing themselves while they watch it. So you have a physical reinforcement okay. of the behavior, but it, then you see you can see the intermeshment there between sexual needs and emotional needs. So it gets it gets very confusing for the person. You know. They also, feel- I imagine if you're the circulation of anger, watch mm-hmm. some porn. Mm-hmm wank yourself off or whatever yeah, yeah and then like that whole emotional like absolutely feel feel shame and guilt for doing it yeah and then, like like who don't be putting your anger with like you know a sexual you know sexual emotion absolutely yeah i can see yeah. like i can see where there that go. goes exactly. from to, yeah. to like yeah. down the line like you exactly know, and that's violent right. crimes there you go and it gets and you can see those needs get get crossed over and the boundary yeah. between am I doing this to satisfy, 
to or to quell my feeling of loneliness gets mixed up with, oh, I'm doing this because it's sexually pleasurable and it gets all very kind of confusing. And um, what's what seems to happen? And so the, the literature would show as well. And then also um, like the research literature and then my experience of working where I work. And I've I've worked there full time for five years and I was a trainee there at the end of 2011. And I did my doctorate thesis with clients from there as well. So I've been involved in this field for eight years now, nearly actually. Yeah. So what I saw as well there, I want to continue to see, is that there's this trajectory that people commonly follow where they start viewing mainstream pornography mm. and then it's like that they need something that's more taboo to give them the same hit or high or numbness. Chasing the dragon, is Chasing the dragon, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it starts by then it's kind of like, you know, bestiality or s Next thing you know, you're onto pigs. And so then you're onto pigs. All roads lead to pigs. All roads lead to farms. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> hell. And, um, and then, you know... It, 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 the ages start coming down. They look; they're looking for younger, younger girls in it, and it's preteens. What is the attraction with preteens? With like, mm, I mean, I think there's something. It's kind of psychologically interesting to explore there because it's it's like, what does the person associate with mm. with the preteen? Is there some sort of innocence about it, mm. or um, because they're older, do they feel more? Um, of a, a kind of a master or superiority over the person. So yes. you're always looking for, does the person identify with the child in the in the image or video they're viewing or do they identify with the, with the person doing the act to the child? Very interesting. So that's very, um, it's very psychologically rich. And I suppose that's why I like working with, with mm. these kind of clients as well. And maybe it just sounds bizarre for people to listen to me, but in terms of... Um, psychological you know uh, theory and richness yeah the the, the, the sexual offenses are the i suppose the most yeah the most kind of complicated and nuanced and very particular to each person um i I'm, remember a lot uh, it could be a year or two now there was um I don't even know, like um, a therapist center was it i don't want to give out too many details like because oh, but it wasn't the paper but remember it was out it was out by our gym and there was like uh, there was like paedophile like workplace or something but, and there was basically got out into the papers yes and then there was like this whole thing where people were like protesting yeah. outside yeah and I remember like obviously we were saying to you where it was like you know what's your opinion on this because obviously you work in the field and you were like you, th- totally against the the um protests yes. you were like they're they're going there to to get help they've yep. recognized that they've done something wrong mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. privacy and all these different things mm. so it, it stroke up this like really interesting conversation like in our group where mm. like people were like no like burn them at the mm-hmm, stake and then mm-hmm. others were like no i've never looked at it like that before yeah um, what were your reasons or what are your reasons to um well you've you've given your reasons to why you think that it's important to mm let them like do they heal like they can do. you come back yes. from yeah, yeah, yeah. like yeah. So what is the, exactly. the term of phrase or yeah, what do you say rehabilitate i mean that there's there's just a number of misconceptions out there mm-hmm. about these sort of crimes and uh one is that these people reoffend at the highest rates they actually yeah. reoffend at the lowest rates okay so um not to, get, to keep the black humor back but somebody somebody asked do I want to live next to a burglar or um, somebody who looked at child pornography I'll definitely pick the person who looked at the child pornography yeah. even if I had children you know I would do that they're, they're going to be the least likely to really? reoffend so yeah so I if mean you even, had children you, you honestly wouldn't mind living next door to a paedophile but they're not you see you have to think about what the word paedophile is you have see? they ha- see so is a paedophile someone who has actually 
sexually assaulted a child? No, see, it's not defined by their actions. It's defined by their sexual orientation. So right. paedophilia is a sexual orientation, if you want to look at it that way. And there are no specific characteristics particular to paedophilia. The same way as you can't say all straight people are empathic or all mm. all gay people are impulsive or something. No, no, that's true. You can't say all paedophiles are something because yeah. they're not because you get you get a complete range then and you get the people who are empathic or, or who aren't or who have a conscience or don't you know or in the position in their life where they have a conscience or they don't wow. um you know so you get the people who want help and then the people who don't want help um but sorry in terms of the vigilanteism yes i have a huge problem with that um my doctoral thesis was around that subject actually because mm-hmm. um what I did was that uh, I mentioned earlier about the the risk of reoffending assessments, mm-hmm. and that there's there are these tools that encompass a list of risk factors right. that would predict whether the person reoffend or not. So what I did was that um, for my doctoral work, I um, interviewed I think it was ten or fifteen, I can't remember, um, clients who had committed a sexual offence, and I interviewed interviewed them to hear about whether they had experienced uh, stigma, so stigmatization. So stigma is for a working definition, you know, uh, when the value of someone is devalued because of a certain condition that they have. Yeah. Now, of course, you you could argue that they should be stigmatized, you know, because what they've done is terrible. So, yeah. you know, we would put that aside a second. But so I wanted to know had somebody had these people experienced stigmatization. So it, how you how that would manifest would be say um, had they been harassed in the streets, had they mm-hmm. been denied um, employment, denied access to courses, had they lost friends, had they lost partners, had they lost had they been excluded from clubs or something they had been a part of, right. had they lost their homes. Um, so I interviewed them and nearly all of them had experienced these sort of things. Um, and then what I did was that I looked at all the risk factors on on one of the risk instruments that predicts sexual reoffending within the next six months mm. and I linked their experiences to the risk factors that were on this this instrument so wow. basically I was trying to say okay if you exclude people if you don't let them have a stable place to live um a job um access to sport or community things mm. um that pushes up their risk of reoffending so this vigilanteism that goes on where people on Facebook takes photos and write comments and, and the, all the, the like. they chase after people on the streets yeah. and like, yeah. you know, pin you're, them until the police come and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, you're, you're pushing up their risk of reoffending because you're taking away their kind of safety, security. And in, in the case of that service that the, 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 um, there were protests, um, you literally took away their access to to yeah. therapy to help mm. to help you you said no you can't have that now sorry and these people are still around us it's not like oh if they can't go to their their uh, therapy center They're that they just coming disappear from an island like no. off the coast <laughs> like they do live amongst you they do i think i would be it, it's i don't know how i feel about it yeah um, I, i'm well, not that i know of i don't know anyone who has been sexually abused as a child yeah um hopefully knowing that i know is is having a burdening secret <laughs> but um I don't know how I feel about it. I don't mm. know, but it I definitely hear your your. Yeah. I I definitely respect. Mm. My thing is is never to judge and to always like you know never judge something that you don't experience or you mm-hmm. don't know anything about. Yeah. So I know that you work in the field, so I definitely respect yeah. where you come from, and it does make sense. Mm-hmm. It does make sense. Mm-hmm. I wanted to. Um, there's so much. There's like there's a field of stuff that we can go into about your your job, but I know obviously um, recently there was the case that was in the news of the. 
Anacregal. Anacregal, who mm. was murdered in Lucan by the two 13 and 14, yes. I'm right in saying. Yeah. yeah. Um, please talk. Like, <laughs> I mean, basically, I always thought, I, I was always of the mindset that we are all born pure mm-hmm. and we are all born only knowing like love and fear or yeah. we're yeah. essentially good. Like all yep. babies are good. No one's born bad. Yeah. And it's just... Uh, uh, a, a timeline of different things that happen along your childhood, mm-hmm. teens into young adulthood that if, that basically um, create the adult that you're going to be or or how you turn out. When I read that story and you had sent again into like this infamous jiu-jitsu <laughs> girls group that we have, you had put in the, the I think it was just like an RTE breakdown of like the, the, the court mm-hmm. documents from start to finish, everything that had happened. And I read it from start to finish and I was heartbroken. Mm. And I was like, I mm-hmm. didn't know who I was more heartbroken for, her parents or the parents of the children who had actually offended and who had, had you know, raped and, yeah. and murdered this child. Yep. Um, how how do you, does a child at 13 years of age commit a crime to, to premeditate rape and murder mm-hmm. and to actually go through with it? No, it's absolutely shocking. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I did, you know, find that case shocking as well. And that's, I think that's a new type of crime that you're maybe seeing in 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 Ireland. I think a bit more. I think that they're they're now the youngest people in the state who've mm. been convicted of murder. Um, I think there was a young person, maybe it was in the eighties or something like that, in the, in the Midlands. I think who 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 murdered another young boy. There's been all these freak but, kind of things like Jamie, remember Jamie Bulger, the the yeah. two kids that took him away, and mm-hmm. there's different things over the last like you know decade or two yeah. that have cropped up. But I think it was when it's on your doorstep like it is yeah. now. I think that kind of freaked everyone yeah. out. But I think I think that is an important point to make is that this is a new maybe a newer type of crime that mm. we're seeing in Ireland. I think if you looked at America or maybe some other countries, they would have a higher rate of of younger offenders, mm. you know. So, so there's something in that maybe that needs to, to be d- disentangled. But um, I would like I don't. I have to. Be, I, I'm very careful, obviously. But you know, I don't know anything about these these young boys' uh, families mm. um, at all or anything. But I would be the same as you in that I I believe that um, people human beings are good at their heart and if you mm. if you see a, a baby or a young child um, and you say you know if they could speak as a baby what would you like to grow up to be they're not going to say oh, well I, I want to grow up and murder somebody or or do you know whatever else. Mm. Um, so I do believe that a plethora of things would have to have gone wrong in in both those young men's uh, young boys' lives to lead them to to that point. Now, well, what I do give me find an example of what we're thinking here because yeah. like it's so your mind yeah. can just it's very hard. I think th- I think you know there's prob- there's certainly probably some sort of um, emotional regulation and empathy deficits there. Mm-hmm. Um, the foundations for those things are laid in the attachment style that a, a baby has with their primary caregiver. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, their primary caregiver is, is their mother. But yeah. this isn't to blame his mother or something. Again, I'm, I'm speculating because I know nothing about the, yeah. the families. Um, but yeah, having a secure attachment uh, with, with your with your mother generally, um, that 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 leads you to be able to regulate your emotions and feel empathy towards other people. And I suppose when you do have empathy towards other people, you're far less likely to do something very, very harmful to them because you'll have a conscience and feel that that's wrong because you know what it's like to be, for it to be done to yourself. Yeah. So I think for both of them, I'm sure that they did have um, empathy deficits there. Um, empathy deficits can be compounded and made worse, I suppose, through childhood if 
they experienced some sort of negative events themselves. Maybe they were, you know, they were bullied or experienced some other form of uh, rejection or maybe then looking at those as hierarchy of needs, what needs were missing there, I'm not sure. Um, did they find did they find their place and their sense of belonging? I don't know. Did they only find a sense of belonging through having these kind of taboo interests in violence and horror? Apparently, the boy A who um, who 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 sexually assaulted Anna, um, I think he, you know there were searches on his phone for the, this kind of material. Yeah. Harking back to the pornography thing, he had about I think three thousand images of pornography, and I'll tell you this. I, I this is something I find so this completely speculative as well. But pretty much every case that I have that somebody's looked at child porn, their um, portal into it um, has been through Russian uh, websites of preteen Russian girls. Pretty much every client I have. So I made I immediately made that link when I heard about it because Anna was about thirteen and Russian. Yeah. So I, I I don't know. I think there's there's something there in that. So I I mean I do think a, a pornography there played a role in it and he was trying to um that's very I suppose exp- manifest or realize some sort of um fantasy that he had now what was the fantasy tied up and um I, I, I he was probably a very very angry young person as well I'm sure um and then you're you're wondering then what is he angry about I mean we mm. just we never got to know anything about them really so no, yeah um it's very hard to know we got we did get to know so much about her, which obviously mm. was you know, I think everyone, I think it added to the sense of compassion that mm. everyone had for mm-hmm. her and for her family, mm. and I think the this most the saddening thing about it is that bit that you read about how she's in the house and you know boy B knocks at the door and asks her if she wants to go out and she had no friends and you kind of in your head you sort of trying to imagine this sort of scene that's yes. going on where she says goodbye to her dad I'll be back soon and yeah. probably her joy and happiness yeah. of like someone knocking on the door to mm-hmm. say hey do you want to come hang out you know mm-hmm. and it just sort of twigs something like where you know, as a child, you know, the loneliness that you felt or mm-hmm. am I not good enough or am I not, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm, I'm not in with the cool guys or the cool girls. And it's just like, it's just such a sad thing. It's just no other way to put it, right? Yeah. It's like, you just feel like so, like when I read that and I go, I have to spend the rest of the day like making myself forcing myself to think Mm. about all the good that's in the world and the good people that are there and that I'm a good person and that good can prevail evil and all those things that you see in movies how hard is that for you because you're faced with these type of cases like every single day like do you have to leave work and meditate for an hour and go Jesus like just get that off or is it just work now yeah I don't really I don't everyone asks me that but Mm. I never had a major problem with that I don't know because I find the work I do is just really positive and really hopeful because mm-hmm. the people I'm seeing are coming for for help and yeah. again it's that they want this this good to prevail within yeah. them over, over this other side of themselves and I'm just delighted and privileged to be a part of that so that's what I more think about you are know? they allowed to contact you after they're finished with you like uh, on a personal just basis just say like if you represent someone in court and mm. then they get like a low sentence or something mm-hmm. like are they allowed to contact you again to like drop in like five years later and say hey Renock, just following up to say oh yeah I'm like you know doing great now absolutely. and I'm blah, blah. absolutely yeah and you know that will that always happens I suppose after a course of therapy especially with these 
with with offenders because mm. um they're not there's a phrase used in psychotherapy um which is the worried well so somebody who's quite who's pretty well functioning so yeah. at least on the surface you or I or something like that it's not me mate. <laughs> or yourself yeah Shane in we'd the corner be, not we, me Shane yeah we, we'd be called the worried well so people yeah. are generally functioning quite yeah. well and then you know they might just, <clears> it might just be a particularly stressful point in their life so they need to go talk to a therapist and um yeah that would be the term used for us but people who who offend uh, have just a myriad of problems layered on top of the other and you know they're the problems right to to their core you know like yeah. their, their own sense of self how to be in relationships i mean even in friendships parents and relationships mm. romantic relationships oh, it's, so much. it's yeah it's it's so complicated so it's never, it's, it's a rare time where you get a client and you just kind of do, I don't know, 12 sessions of therapy and good luck and everything's grand. Yeah. You know, they'll always probably, they might come to you once a month thereafter or if they've gone for a couple of months, they'll, they'll come back at other times, particularly stressful points yeah. in their life and re-engage in therapy for another couple of sessions. Mm. Um, so, that's, so that's kind of it. So definitely in the forensic world, if you have a client and you've, I mean, we, we, like we have files at work and, you know, there's a new referral and it's literally like, oh, we saw him five years ago. Okay. You know, he's, and you can say that's kind of depressing as well, but yeah. um, it's depressing when they've reoffended, but it's, it's positive when it's that they've noticed that things are building up and there's a risk of them reoffending mm. and they, and they come to, they come back to the therapist yeah. to say, oh, I need help right now or else things are going to get bad. That's interesting because we obviously had a conversation this week where I was like asking you for like, where are the good therapists? I'm going to go to a new <laughs> therapist, you know, like, so uh, that was the one thing that I was, I was thinking, I was like, you know, is it okay to chop and change your therapist? You know what I mean? And like, I remember the first time I went to a therapist and I was like, I, you, I think you said to me like, how are you finding her? How are you getting on? Whether, you know, do you find it good or whatever or, or um, you know, you're you're finding out stuff or whatever, and I was just like, yeah, I don't know how to decipher whether she's a good therapist, and I'm like, what makes a good therapist? Yeah. You know, it's very yep. hard. Yep. So, you know, I kind of go, I kind of dabble. I like it, but I love therapy because it's a chance to go in and literally someone has to listen to what I'm Absolutely. saying, and like, you know, and then yeah, I love yeah. the little. Do you think maybe you think like that because, or yeah, exactly. do you think maybe that was a reaction like that because of, mm -hmm. or mm. you know, even just like. um telling like you know story well not a story but you know relaying stuff that had happened in your past and then for them to say hmm that's interesting because I would associate that with what you spoke about two weeks ago you know so it's, yeah. it's like really good yeah obviously therapy is not just for <laughs> sexual offenders it's for everyone <laughs> no, it is for everyone it's for, it everyone. Is for everyone yeah there's um there's a guy called Carl Rogers and he would have been yeah. quite famous in I think it was the 60s now but he came along and he kind of revolutionized things a little bit in terms of therapy before that it would have been more of the sort of Freudian psychoanalysis sort of uh, regime where you, you lie on a couch and the mm. therapist sits behind you and yeah. they don't so you have no face-to-face -face contact with them then traditionally they wouldn't even say anything <laughs> so you lie on the couch and you're just supposed to what's called free associate which is just say the first words that come into yeah. your mouth and they'll say mm, mm, mm. oh no I'm immediately <laughs> unsettled yeah. immediately so I, it, I actually can't do I can't um, like you have to see I can't have people behind yeah, me. Yeah, like and I you're couldn't. dead right. So, so Carl Rogers came along and said, no, 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 this is all wrong. The, yeah. it, what, what it's about is a therapeutic relationship. It's about two people 
um, meeting and talking face to face and uh, uh, creating something between them that they can that they can talk about and analyze and figure out. Um, and he came at it. Uh, what was his theory? He had six six conditions, six core conditions. He called them. Yeah. So it was that the. I don't know if I'm going to remember all six of them now, but uh, the therapist needs to be uh, genuine yes. and needs to be empathic yeah. oh, and yes. needs to have un- what's called unconditional positive regard. So it's basically like, I think you're a good person no matter what you say, say or do. Yeah. yeah. And you need to communicate those fact, those th- th- that, uh, that stance, I suppose, yeah. to, to the client. Um and then you're trying to engender those qualities in the client. And if they are, then then they're supposed to be psychologically healthy. So if I can get you to be genuine and empathic and yeah. have unconditional positive regard, then you're A-OK. Yeah. But um, he said that these conditions were necessary and sufficient. So he said that's all you need to do. All you need to do is just you know, emanate empathy to the client. Mm. Don't be directive, just let them, and they'll go, they'll grow in the right direction. Um, it's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. And I believe it to a degree. I believe that it's necessary, but I don't think that those conditions are probably sufficient in that I definitely like to be a bit more directive with yeah. with clients and um, I, d- I don't maybe leave them completely turning to their own devices. I, I bet suppose. you don't. <laughs> no. Let me get my pipe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Stroke yeah. my beard. I'm conscious of time here um, oh, yeah. and there's so much more. I, honestly, you're probably going to have to get you back on again because there's so much in, jo- in your work that like we can uh, we can delve into. Yeah. So basically, you're working away. You're, you know, fixing the world, you know, uh, one pedophile at a time. <laughs> All at a time. I like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, sorry, I don't mean to be making my heart of the situation. <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying. For, like, keep it light. Um, but um, then obviously you start jiu-jitsu. Um, and that was, you know, I don't I need you to, to go in and explain about how that metamorph- metamorphosized your entire life <laughs> um, uh, for the better, obviously. Um, when you started jiu-jitsu, like you became, like we all do, obsessed with it. Yes. And very quickly you uh, started competing. Yeah. Um. I know you won't want to do this, but I'm going to force you to do it. Go through your titles, your winnings, uh, medals I don't, over I don't the years. Even know what titles yeah, you've I won have. so many. That's why. Ah, no, I haven't really. It was yes, mostly have. white belts, so I don't know if they really count. No, there's a few <laughs> a blue belts as well. Renak recently, uh, last week, two weeks ago, got promoted to purple belts. I did, yeah. and it was a traumatic affair for me because I cried my eyes <laughs> for 20 minutes our coach Dara just said you know and now he was like like saying a little speed of error and I was like oh, yeah, 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 yeah. and Lindsay who was on the podcast a couple weeks ago has a great photograph of me actually looking like a toddler like <laughs> got her you know her doll taken off her um, but the reason why it was so emotional for me mm. um, was because I knew that what you had gone through over the last two years now is it or a year and uh, a half yeah, yeah about a year and a half I so to get our listeners up to date you were doing jiu-jitsu you were winning lit- you were absolutely cleaning up every two or three weeks you were competing at all major competitions local competitions all the girls in Ireland were like, I hope I do not get Renock in any competition because she's a beast and she will run through it. You were my, and still are, most competitive role in the gym. Like the 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 healthy competitive 
ness that we have mm-hmm. is brilliant yeah. it's like yeah. it's such a learning experience and it's so good to have someone that's on the same like where we're it's not that like oh don't care what happens here we want to win the round and mm-hmm. it's so important and all the girls are like that to a degree as well and you were at I would say the peak of your career and you text me you text into the group wasn't it yeah I did and I remember because I was this is before I had left work to do Fight Connect TV full time right. and you put into the group that Jesus I'm gonna start crying <laughs> that you were diagnosed with breast cancer I was yeah and bummer bummer <laughs> I fucking remember the day I was in work and I was just like Uh, the blood drained from my face and it was the first time that anyone had ever that was that close to me that had been diagnosed with breast cancer my aunt was diagnosed with breast cancer but she kept it very like to herself you know we knew after she had gone through it Um, but for someone that I saw every day in training Mm -hmm. and that was such a massive part of my life and someone who was so strong and you know I go to you for every emotional disaster that I have or advice or you know what I mean so to have you say that you have cancer and immediately when you hear the word cancer you hear my fucking best mate is gonna die yeah yeah that's what initially comes into your head, right? So that's what that's what I heard too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that the journey from that that first day that you said that you had, were diagnosed with breast cancer to where you are now. First of all, the the time period because, like, again, it's not even two years, and you're sitting here in front of me, like as healthy as can be, healthier looking than I am. Do you know what I mean? And the way that you handle this whole experience life journey was just you blew us all away so oh. talk to me let's get into it yeah how yeah. you how, the, how you basically went to getting diagnosed to yeah. having breast cancer what were, were, what happened so what i remember is uh my birthday's in july mm. your birthday is the 27th christmas eve but in july yes oh 26th 25th, 24th, 24th is Christmas Eve, 24th of July. Um, So I was 30 last year, last, no, sorry, the year before. Yeah. What year am I at? 2017. Yeah, Yeah. I'm I'm 32 next week or or two weeks. So in 2017, in July, I was 30. Mm -hmm. And and I've said this to a lot of people, but it's still true. Um, I, I, I do remember after that, that my right nipple was kind of, it was like it was tethered. I suppose mm-hmm. it started like not sticking out the, the way it normally would. Yeah. And I and I link it to my age because I do remember making the joke to myself, oh, right, this is, you're in your 30s now, your nipples go queer. Next comes a hairy chin. <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah. yeah, exactly. So I really didn't <laughs> think anything of it. And I, you know, examining my breast, I couldn't feel any particular lumps. So I yeah. really didn't do or think anything of it. And then it was January, so January 2019, and you know, you're doing your like life admin at the, mm. the start of January or whatever. And I went to, I was in the doctor, uh, doctor for some other reason. And just when I was going out the door, and it literally was going out the door, I just said, Do you know, I'll just tell her what the nipple thing. So I did. Fuck. And she said, Sure, come here. I'm sure it's grand. I'll have a look at it. So she examined my breast, thought the same thing. She was like, okay, well, it kind of feels generally more dense, but I can't really feel any tumor in it or, or lump per yeah. se. I'll refer you into the um, breast clinic in, I won't say the hospital, because I know yeah. people have gotten in trouble with saying the name Don't, of the hospital. Yeah, yeah, a South no. Dublin hospital. Um, <laughs> 
So I went there, it was a month after the 2nd of February and I went in and I re- I still didn't think anything of it. I thought, mm. ah, this will all be fine. Went in and the doctor examined me and it was at that moment I thought, oh shit, because his reaction was just instantaneous. He examined my breasts and he just said to me, he was like, go down the hall and get an ultrasound and a mammogram right now, today. He just said, it's not good, you know. And I remember that day was probably the the, the, the day where I, of all the days since that I've been kind of most kind of overwhelmed or upset, mm-hmm. like I did start crying. And I remember I had to go down to the hallway and do the ultrasound mammogram. And I was, I was just going around the hospital like, and I, I was crying. Imagine. I remember this. I and was you're tra- on your own. I was on my own, yeah. And I was trying to, <laughs> I was trying to regulate my emotions. I was there, I got out like flow grappling. I was like, just watch some jiu-jitsu and it'll be fine. Just watch Paolo Miao there, do a few... A few leg drags and you'll be grand. So uh, that's what I was doing. But I was, I was just crying away to myself. And um, to even hear you say that you were crying is so out of character for you, for, for me to know you because you're so strong and you're so like kind of resilient. You know what I mean? Like I've never seen you in a panic state or anything. So yeah. to think about you in that is like upsetting. Yeah, I'm not generally a crier, I suppose. Yeah. yeah so so in town and then um, Mamra, with the ultrasound, they can tell you if it's a solid mass or a cyst, which is mm. full of liquid. So the um, doctor could could tell by that that it was solid. That that doesn't necessarily mean that it's cancerous either. So what it means is that they have to um, do fine needle aspirations. So they stick a needle and do a tiny little biopsy and just mm. pull, and they just do that there. And then, so she did that. And then I looked at the ultrasound image. So off I went and I went home and it was a week after this. It was going to be the 9th of February. But in that week, sure, off I went on Google and... Uh, as you know, all roads lead to cancer, and we talked about it. It was, it was actually the correct road <laughs> this time. <laughs> so self-diagnosis <laughs> does work. It does work. Yeah. So keep doing it. Keep googling. <laughs> no, I I saw images like ultrasound images of breast cancer, and it was textbook. Textbook looked exactly like it. And you could remember black black image with kind of a frayed outline, kind of being horizontal rather than vertical. So. I, you know, I looked, I looked it all up in terms of um, familiarizing myself with with stages of mm-hmm. of cancer and all that. So, which people are familiar, I didn't really know beforehand. Um, so, stage one is when the lump is on, is less than two centimeters. Um, stage two is if it's between two centimeters and five centimeters. Stage three is if it's in your lymph nodes under your armpit, and then stage four is when it's metastasized elsewhere in your body and it's considered mm-hmm. terminal. Then. Um, so when I went back in the 9th of February, I mean, I knew, I just knew I had it at that stage. Yeah. So, and I, I really remember that particular day, it was a lovely day and I remember getting off the, the bus, the number seven, <laughs> and thinking, this is a lovely day to get diagnosed with cancer. I remember Stop. saying those words, like, I suppose it's kind of, at this humor point, I have. Ha- have you told your family members? No, I haven't told anybody. I told my boyfriend at the time, mm. a- a- Adam, he would have known. So, mm. but I had... I knew it was cancer, but I didn't want to kind of say that in case it wasn't, you know. So I was just saying to him, oh, it's, you know, most people, it's it's not cancer at all. You know, I'm yeah. so young, couldn't be. So I went in, so just by myself and I went in and then I remember he, so I did the doctor and he beckoned me in and then he was on a phone call and, yeah. and I kind of said, you know, we're like, what? And he said, no, no, sit, you know, beckon me to sit down. And then he was on the phone for a few kind of seconds or minutes. And he had the file in front of him and the file was open and at the top of the file had plan of action. And then the word mastectomy was written <gasps> there. So I was sitting there and he was on the phone there and I was looking at the file and I saw that. I was like, well, they're hardly going to 
chop my tit off if I don't have cancer. So get off the phone, mate. Yeah. So I mean, it, it just shows him. I shows I suppose how run of the mill this is for them. Do you know, he just didn't think, oh, I better close that because she's going to read yeah. it. But to be honest, my first thing that was funny, I was supposed to go to Worlds that year. Mm, and I had world championships in California in California at yeah. the end of May and um I had I had booked my flight to that stage I think yeah and um I looked up about mastectomies you know I had in the previous week and stuff yeah. and I'd read that it would take I think it was like 12 weeks to get back to exercise so I remember sitting there and he was on the phone and I saw the word mastectomy and I just like started counting up the weeks and it was like 16 weeks I was like oh that's just grand I'll just just have a mistake to be get back at the mat and like still go to work. It's that <laughs> jiu-jitsu thing, isn't it? It's like actually like if someone broke my ankle, I was like Addiction. when can I get back? It's yeah. like it's this sort of like fight or flight kind of thing, or just sort of like, <laughs> oh, it's just an insane thing. Yeah. So you find out then that you have to have a double mastectomy. Well, what happened was then so he had off and he said, Unfortunately there's cancer in that breast and then there was a series of other kind of test to stage it mm. so um, I had a CT to see it had it already metastasized so it hadn't so it wasn't yeah. stage 4 we knew that and then I had a, a minor surgery <laughs> I had a minor surgery under my armpit to, to take out the first four lymph nodes that the cancer would travel mm. to if it had gone into my lymph nodes um, I'll tell you now that surgery was um, it was a week no it was two weeks before you you did grapple kings as well did you? Do you remember Fuck we did it? We, we had the intro we music. Fought, we fought on the same night. Yeah. I have the photograph. We had a little glass of Prosecco we did. afters. Yeah. We did. And yeah. you had... Oh, this so is that was, that was, <laughs> I was diagnosed at that stage and I was doing... I had the, the surgery a week before that to see if it was in my lymph nodes. I, that's right. I remember that <laughs> yeah. night and like I remember then when you tell me because I didn't know at this stage that you, you had even been diagnosed or any of this yeah, is going on. Yeah. I remember then when you told me and I started piecing together I was like, what? I was like this couldn't be right I was like we fought on the same cards like we fought on Grapple Kings like yeah. and we had Prosecco and she was totally fine you know what I mean like she fought she's like you know God damn that Rosa Walsh still beat me she, Rosa Walsh is literally <laughs> like we're, we're both going to get her if you're listening to Hi, Ro- you I should, love you yeah, I'm coming for you to get her like, that's <laughs> 2020 we're both going to beat you um, but uh, yeah like it was just like such a wild time um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember like you know just been like shook like I was definitely shook for a while I remember like you came to my house and we were talking about it and the the processes and different stuff like that and then I remember at what stage was it when your hair started falling out well, you see what happened was then right sorry so originally the, the plan yeah, of the action sorry, from, to explain yeah. was it was a mastectomy because what they found on the ultras, uh, ultrasound was what they thought was two separate tumours so right. two 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 centimetre tumours in different quadrants of the breast so I, I, they thought the, the plan was to have um, a mastectomy because they can't do a lumpectomy when it's in two bits of the breast okay. the whole thing just looked terrible so they're like we'll remove the breast and you can get an implant in so that was the plan but then uh, alas uh, I had the the lymph node surgery and uh, the cancer was in all four of the lymph nodes so I, originally I was kind of told because these tumours were supposedly less than two centimetres I've been told it, it probably stage one now it's gone to stage three mm. so um that wasn't good. And that means that then I was recommended chemotherapy. They said, if it's in your lymph nodes in stage three, you need to do chemotherapy. Mm. That was what the breast surgeon recommended. And I remember that day I was told that because I was flying to um, the London Grand Slam, Abu Dhabi, that Friday. And that Friday morning, I went in 
to the to the doctor to get the results of the lymph node surgery. I was told I had to do chemotherapy and then I was on the flight to London a couple hours later. That weekend. Yeah, yeah. I remember I never have I so much just wanted to get on the mats because like I, I was extremely preoccupied with mm. it. And I was probably at that point I, I were were definite thoughts of I, I'm going to die. I mean, this, yeah. this is it. And I remember kind of going around London um, fewer things like you know the way people have tattoos of names of people yeah and I remember looking at people and going oh somebody's gonna have a tattoo of my name hopefully <laughs> of my, my name but it won't fit on their arm will it be your <laughs> twin brother long. yeah you're a bit you have to well, we call you Riri so <laughs> like Riri, that, fits, Riri. Yeah. that fits in a nice little uh, wrist there yeah, or I'm happy that. I don't have to get Riri <laughs> tattooed on me anywhere That's thanks good. a million <laughs> um so off we went to that yeah. and then at that point then the plan was changed to um chemotherapy and then a mastectomy and then to do radiation therapy. Um, yeah, so the hair, I remember, I remember, it actually will never leave me the night that, now Renoc trained all throughout this, like literally through her, sur- like, I mean, like the bandages were still on and she was like, I'm coming in for a session. And we were like, you're nuts. But I remember like distinctly the night that I had, se- I had seen, you it was like your energy had lowered okay you know like you you look you didn't look tired but I could just feel that you were sort of tired okay and you were on the mats rolling and next when I looked at the mats and there was clumps of your hair yeah on the mats yeah there was and I just had to go into a corner and cry oh no (laughs) three rounds oh dear yeah because I I was just it was it it was real then it was and you were so brave up until that you were still being brave but you had let not let on in any way that you were you were like I'm grand you looked the way you were saying it to us was that you know you were looking at like a broken limb you were like it's just it's something that I now have to go get fixed mm-hmm. and in a certain amount of time it's going to be all sorted and we're going to be back to normal and everything's going to be great and it's yeah. just going to be this thing that I experienced and yeah. you know it'll be a memory but in that moment I was just like I can't believe this is happening to someone that I love so much and that also in a selfish selfish way I was like no that's my training partner like Aww. we because we we drill all the time when we're in the class together like we just yeah. automatically match up and, and go together um and I was like no what will happen where will my training partner be but yeah. obviously that was like you know a, a weird little avenue of like <laughs> I'm sad I got a Simba Mufasa moment there I could see myself <laughs> in the clouds appearing <laughs> to you <laughs> and all you're saying is drill more yeah Drill more, Lydia. Drill more. Yeah. Pay more attention Pay more in that attention. fucking class. <laughs> Do what Dara tells you. Do what Dara tells you. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah. Uh, then when you, I remember when you, your hair, you got to cut it and you got to cut it short. I, I, yeah. So I thought, you know, it was good advice that I yeah. got from the 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 oncologist and that she said look if you've long hair, it's a little bit less traumatic if you cut your hair short mm. anyway. So I did do that. I did. So I did that after the first. So I did. Um, Eight infusions of chemotherapy. It's called ACT. So mm-hmm. adriamycin, cyclophosphamide, and then last four weeks or Taxol. Um, it was every two weeks. So I was told that your hair falls out between day 14 and day 21. So day one is their first chemotherapy yeah. infusion. Day 14 is the second one. So on the first day of chemotherapy, I, I went to training. I said, I'm going to keep on going as I continue. If my body really can't do something, it will let me know. Yeah. So I remember that day I went in and I went up to Darren and said like, look, 
I just had a chemotherapy fusion today. I don't really know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to throw up or faint yeah. or something. So, you know, how bear he, with me. How was he in that moment? But he was great. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, he, was, he was. He was just like, yeah, sure. Cool. You know, no problem. Yeah. Um, so I trained. That was fine. That two weeks. And then day 14, day of the second infusion, came home. And at four o'clock, I just touched my hair, like ran my hair like that through it. And just, yeah, there was hair all over my hand, you know, and I kind of thought... Because I'd been so well and I hadn't had other side effects, mm. I'd nearly had this this hope. <laughs> this that it wasn't real? Yeah, well, that it maybe, I thought maybe my hair won't fall out, but yeah. uh, no. So yeah, I went to training that day, so that would have been a Monday again. Mm. And that's it. I think I, ro- I think I, did I do drills or rolled with someone with a white gi or something and yeah. stood up from them, they were just covered There's black hairs hair. all over. Yeah. And I, I thought like, um, you know, all he knew at this stage, so people who were close to me mm. knew and the jiu-jitsu people who were close to me knew, but I, d- I found it very difficult for the people who didn't know me because I just yeah. thought like, what are they going to think? They're just going to think her hair is just yeah. falling around the or face. Th- and they're like, is she having a midlife crisis? <laughs> she had beautiful, long, flowing black hair <laughs> yeah, yeah. yesterday and today she's G.I. Jane. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there was a really funny moment in that process because basically then, just to say to people if they don't know, like your hair falls out I think, well, for most people, like within the space of a week. So yeah. so between that Monday and that Saturday, but that Saturday I was absolutely bald. So my hair kept just falling out. So then I, I kept kind of shaving it shorter and shorter. So it wasn't ready just to kind of shave it, yeah, shave it completely course, off. Yeah. Um, but I kept shaving it shorter because it was so patchy. But I remember, I won't say the person in the club is very, like I laughed so much at this. So my hair would, I think, would you would have definitely noticed the stage that there was some sort of problem that I hadn't decided to do because it was really short and like bald patches all over it, and there was a bo- hair bobble on the mat. And I was sitting by the side of the man and he came up and he was like, "Oh well, that hairstyle you won't need this anymore," and he went off. And I, I just started laughing because, like, I don't really know this person so yeah, well. But yeah. so obviously they didn't know. Otherwise, that would have been the most risky joke ever to make. But I was really risky. Oh, man, I was in stitches. I was just thinking, like, in two days' time when I'm completely bald and he knows why. He's just, <laughs> just going to be dying. If and did that, did that person ever come back to you and be like, I'm so sorry. I didn't yeah, know. He, did, he didn't address it, though. He no. definitely fucking he was, though. Though. It was very funny. I laughed, <laughs> I laughed a lot. Um, so it was hard. I, it was hard for me around the people I found who just didn't. No, because yeah. it was like this thing of oh, like I I wanted to explain it, but yeah. what are you gonna what are you gonna do? Like, just, yeah, do you just go over to someone in the corner and go, oh, oh I have cancer, you yeah. know? And then you're like, you know, yeah. it's just so it's, you just can't. So it, yeah, I think for you though, the hair was the only thing that made it apparent that you had cancer or that mm-hmm. anything was wrong because oh, hundred percent, you were fresh looking <laughs> the whole way through it, and you know, a big part of that was obviously because you researched you know, um, recovery, cancer recovery. And one of the biggest things that you discovered was keto. Yes. Um, and cancer keto, cancer which keto. is, uh, which from you I've learned is a whole like tribe on the internet <laughs> in particular. Instagram is filled with cancer keto uh, recovery yeah, patients and yeah. different stuff. So what was the, the link up with the keto? What, what was your, yeah. what were you trying to achieve by doing this style of keto? Yeah. Is keto no dairy, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't eat dairy. Yeah. Um, so keto how is start, protein and fat. Yeah. So I do, I do 75% fat, 20% protein, 5% carbs. How I started with this was, so I knew I had to go into, to, to do, well, I had to, I, I suppose I chose to do chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. And so. What was your alternative if you didn't do chemotherapy? Just 
try and heal naturally. Uh, if I could go back in time, I would have tried. Yeah, I would have given. I would have waited three months and not done an intervention. Really? It turns out, like I don't know if we've time to get into it, but it turns out the chemotherapy had zero effects on the cancer I had because the the cancer I had. So there's stages. It denotes how advanced it is, and then there's grades. I'm not sure if this applies to blood cancers like leuke- leukemia, but I'm pretty sure it applies to all other cancers. Um, cancer is a given a grade and if you, it's either grade one, two or three and one means it's the slowest type of growing cancer and two grows faster, three is very aggressive and it, all the cancer I had was grade one so it's extremely slow growing so the chemotherapy didn't have any effect in it because the chemotherapy what? kills um, quickly dividing cells so the cancer cells I had were too slow for the chemotherapy to um, have an effect on them yeah so that was a bit of a hard pill to swallow where I said okay so all my hair fell out and I had to be bald for five or six months for no reason Um, and imagine if I had been sick like if I'd been really unwell like that would have been very hard to accept so thinking back what I should have done is I suppose you go in and you're told this and as you said you instantly think I'm going to die okay and I don't want to die so what am I going to do but I suppose, look, I can't, I'm not a doctor. I'm not the use of type of doctor. It's one yeah. of those ones. But I, I th- think it's worth considering thinking, okay, slow down here. Let me do my research. Let me see my options and think about what might be best to do. The reality of that situation is, though, you are in the 1% who want to go off and research mm. and to get mm. answers. That's true also. Yeah. People just, I assume, again, I've never had cancer, thank you. But I assume people go in and they're just like, fix me. I don't care what it yeah. takes, just do whatever just you need do to do. It. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like going back, see their point was, okay, the bit we needled, we biopsied was grade one. We mm. don't know if the rest was grade one. Okay. But what I should have thought about then was, was to say, well, let's do the mastectomy first then. Because you do the mastectomy, you remove all the cancer, do yeah. the pathology on that. Then I would have seen it was all grade one. And then I would have known there's no point doing chemo. Okay. But I didn't think of that. And they didn't think of that yeah. either. And also, like, <laughs> I mean, can you go into a doctor and say, I think you should do this? Yeah. You know, I assume they, they didn't go... want to give me a double mistectomy, but I just argued them. I got, I got back, went back to my roots there in my family and <laughs> utilised the good part of that and told them this you wanted. Yeah, and I, I just argued my case for it. How very Angelina Jolie of you yes. with your double mastectomy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, I also got... Um, uh, the first person in Ireland to get pre-pectoral implants. So this is where the implant is in front of in the front muscle? In front of the pectoral muscle, yes. Because okay. historically it's it always behind. behind. And I said, well, how's that going to affect jiu-jitsu? And, and <laughs> they said, well, we're cutting your pectoral muscle in two. To be honest, it doesn't really go back properly. And I said, well, can we find another another answer then, please? And to be fair to my plastic surgeon, um, she had training in this type of of uh, reconstruction, and she said, "Look, if you're if you're happy to to do this, I'll I'll do this type of surgery for you." And I I was back. I had other kind of complications, but that weren't related to that. But besides that, I was back able to train after six weeks. Only six weeks after after, a, after a vasectomy, yeah, and, and an implant. In. If they had said, "We can't put it in front of the muscle; it has to go behind," and you probably won't be able to like compete as you did or train as you did yeah. would you have chosen to not actually get the implants at all and just had I don't know it's very it's a very difficult one like um I don't know I think jiu-jitsu probably gives me more joy than well, this is having <laughs> and having breasts or does it I don't know <laughs> 
the things we have to worry <laughs> about. Yeah, the things we need third world problems. A woman, like, like breasts or jujitsu. Get out of your chips. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, I mean, obviously the the journey from the the. Am I right in thinking that your your surgeon or doctor as well was like we've never seen somebody like recover yeah. so quickly? Yeah, they couldn't, and that's I suppose I was quite disappointed about them because they were all saying that they just said that you're the healthiest chemo patient we've ever seen, never seen Which somebody. Which was down to your diet. Right? Yeah, so just quickly to say about that. Yeah, so I started researching how to keep healthy during it, and I came across research by a guy called uh, Walter Longo, and he's in UCLA. University of California, LA, um, or maybe San Diego. And he has done a lot of research into fasting and using keto during chemo and um, and that it's been associated with lower uh, uh, side effects. The side effects are much less. So that's what I did. But I only fasted for about, I fasted for about 30 hours in chemotherapy days, did a keto diet. I also did a thing called um, hyperbaric oxygen it's another thing. Research. You go. It sounds insane. You go into a, cha- cha- sounds, a chamber. It sounds like Lydia Didal needs yeah. to get up on that <laughs> chamber. Yeah, and you go to a chamber, and the air pressure is changed so that you're the equivalent to being twenty meters under sea, and you breathe hundred percent oxygen through a mask. Uh, yeah, it's just supposed to uh, again protect your healthy cells um, from the effects of the chemo and. You know, usually you're prescribed steroids. I was on about a third of the dose of steroids. Luckily, BJJ steroids wasn't after me, so I was yeah, safe. We're safe. We don't test in jiu-jitsu for uh, steroids. <laughs> Not a blue belt. Anyway. Not a blue belt. Yeah. Well, your purple belt now might change. Um, um, so I did. So I was really the, the doc. They they couldn't get over it. They were just like, "How are you? How can you continue to train and work?" I, I worked as well. I did everything the same way, you know. Yeah. But that was it. They'd say, how are you doing that? And then I'd go, oh, because... And they'd just, you know, glaze over and walk yeah. away. No interest. Sorry, we so. can't... This is going to conflict what we do, so... Yeah. Uh, or what we yeah. advise, you know? Yeah. So, um, but I... That's how I... That's why I started doing those and uh, doing those interventions. And I just saw that it worked. I believe that it worked. So then I've just done... I mean, the whole name of the game. And th- I think this is... Um, I don't know if we're running out of time now. Sorry, but quickly slide, say... Quickly, quickly go. Quickly say... I, in my experience and from what I've kind of researched, um, people who have cancer or who have it maybe aren't fully aware of really, you know, the the risk of it coming back and how the treatments, inverted commas, it's like a propaganda word to me, to be honest with you, um, how they don't kill stem cancer stem cells. So cancer stem cells, so it's like cancer has these sort of like worker drone cells that are the tumor that you see. And then that you have these cancer stem cells that are in the background that just are, have the, the cancer blueprint and that mm. just make the cells. And when you do chemo or radiation, they kill the kind of the drone cancer cells, but the stem cells can kind of retreat and stay there. Um, and, and they stay there all the time. So really when you've gotten rid of cancer so like i have apparently i'm cancer free yeah um i have to always keep aware of uh, that these cancer symptoms are still in me and then the name of the game is keep them quiet so you're doing all that you can to not give them a reason to proliferate again so um one way is through keto diet so um this guy called otto warburg i think in 1936 uh, won a nobel prize for discovering that cancer cells um can run on uh, glucose so that they they ferment uh, glucose and make energy Um, and that if you really reduce your uh, carbohydrate intake to below about 20 grams of carbs per day uh, as per the keto diet um, 
Instead, um, your cells can run on what are called ketones. I think Hayley was telling you about yeah. this, which is uh, fat, basically f- soluble fat. But cancer cells don't have that kind of mitochondria flexibility, so they can't switch over to running on ketones. So this is a major way to weaken them, to we- weaken those cancer cells. So you're taking away the glucose from them. Um, it, it, it also works because cancer cells have about 10 times the amount of um insulin and glucose receptors on the top of them so when you do a keto diet you're reducing your insulin you're keeping it very very low so you're taking away that fuel for them as well and then another thing is that um, uh, cancer cells will uh, grow and spread in areas that have inflammation so when you do a keto diet it, it keeps all the inflammation in your body at a very low level as well so so through the keto diet, you're removing a lot of the fuel that the cancer cells use, and you're also not creating the, the environment in which they can embed and, and spread as well. So it's kind of going out in a multiple ways. And it also is, is really good for your immune system. And your immune system goes around and kills cancer cells because everybody's body makes cancer cells all the time, but your immune system targets the cells and kills them. So you're improving your immune system as well. So it's kind of a multi-prongs approach it's amazing to keep them quiet and how weird that none of us know about this yeah yeah isn't they that, don't. Isn't, is that yeah. is that just a, a yeah. conspiracy theory or I, is that i said it to the radiologist because by the time i went through all this treatment i was getting brave you know towards the end of it and then i've said it to the oncologist since as well and i said well do these treatments kill cancer cells uh, cancer uh, stem cells and he and she said well no they don't and i said well how come you don't tell patients that and uh, she didn't really reply he the radiologist replied and said well imagine uh, you know how distraught patients are when they come in how Mm. can we tell them that the treatments don't really work Work. on a really really long-term basis and that to me to be honest with you is is of the same kind of caliber as the you know the cervical smear test kind of stuff where it's it's doctors playing god thinking oh i don't want to upset someone so i just won't let them i won't give them information information. that's you know what that means don't you you're going to have to write a book, an extensive <laughs> book, and I'm going to be the first one to proofread it. <laughs> Please do. You really do because you, it's and th- like uh, this is all research that you've done yourself over yeah. the last year or yeah. two, yeah. Um, which goes to show why you're so fantastic at everything that you do in your job as a therapist, as a jiu-jitsu <laughs> practitioner yeah. and competitor. You know, you've just got the brain for it um and i'm delighted Aww. you're here and thank you so much thank for you. coming on the podcast this is your first podcast isn't yeah. it? yeah yeah well no you've done a jiu-jitsu one you did paul brown's one a year or two oh a i did years ago yeah did, did. um but um i know you were nervous so i hope it wasn't too bad yeah. you did brilliantly well done did I? Yeah, I forgot, yeah, I forgot yeah. i was here and now i'm like god what was i saying yeah see that's what happens you get nervous <laughs> at the front and then you just ramble and yeah. it's all good um but listen thank you so much for thanks coming so much in. for inviting me i loved no, it no problem at all rena galeri for the best exchange yay